This is Our American Stories, and we're playing this song and the song you just heard because, well, Kenny Rogers is singing that song, and that's not the Kenny America came to know, but that was Kenny Rogers. Well, that was the early Kenny Rogers. And we're going to spend some time talking about his life because on this day in history, Kenny Rogers was born in 1938. And as always, our This Days in History are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life, the arts, U.S. history, philosophy. It's all there, all the beautiful things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and sign up for, well, almost... A dozen and a half great online courses. Kenny Rogers has charted more than 120 hit singles across various music genres, topped the country and pop album charts for more than 200 individual weeks in the United States alone, and has sold over, get this, 100 million records worldwide, making him one of the best-selling music artists of all time. He was voted the favorite singer of all time in a 1986 joint poll by readers of both USA Today and People. And those are America's newspapers and magazines. His favorite hit is probably yours too, The Gambler. He also acted in a variety of movies and TV shows, most notably the title roles in Kenny Rogers as The Gambler. He is also a co-founder of the restaurant chain Kenny Rogers Roasters. But Kenneth Ray Rogers was born humbly in Houston, Texas. On August 21st, 1938, the fourth of eight children born to Lucille Lois, a nurse's assistant, and Edward Floyd Rogers, a carpenter. Here's Kenny Rogers on growing up in the projects of Houston. The interesting thing is when you're broke and you live in the projects, you don't realize you're broke. It's only when you get a little older and you're exposed to wealth that you realize you don't have it. And I remember when I used to walk to school, I would walk through one of the wealthiest parts of the city and something that stuck with me that even when I was older still sticks with me, they used to have automatic sprinklers in their yard. And I thought that was so cool. And I kept saying, someday I'm going to have automatic sprinklers. Kenny answers the question, did you ever think, why don't I have that? No, I never said that because, I mean, I knew that was a wealthy part of town. I knew I didn't come from there. So I think that as I, I we, we didn't have much, but my mom was a very strong Christian. She went to church. She took us to church three times a week. Mm. Our God had a good shot at our family. And, and my dad had his problems, but we were a happy family. I had four brothers and three sisters and plenty of kids to play with. Here's Kenny on the fine line between ambition and selfishness. Well, I, I think that it made me determined to do something 
But I also think there's a fine line between being driven and being selfish. And I think I became selfish. And that's why some of my marriages didn't work. I was gone six months out of the year. When you have a chance to be something and someone said, do I regret doing it? I regret the people I hurt on the way up. But if I hadn't done it, I could have been working at McDonald's now. Kenny married when he was 19 after getting his girlfriend pregnant. Money was a struggle, so he took a sales job to make ends meet. But he got fired because all of his focus and time was on making music. Here's Kenny. Well, my mom told me when I was a kid, find a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And, and to, you know, to the day she died, she said that boy never worked. All he ever did was sing. I don't think she saw the business side. She saw me doing it because I enjoyed it. But she told me, she said, be happy where you are. Never be content to be there. Because if you're not happy where you are, you'll never be happy. I mean, it's hard, but it's not work because I was doing something that I wanted to do. I could get out anytime I wanted to. I mean, now I could quit if I wanted to, but I choose to be there. Someone said the other day, do you still enjoy it? I said, you know, getting there is not as much fun as it used to be. But once I'm there, there's no place I'd rather be. Indeed. And Kenny's first mainstream success was with his band, First Edition. The song Just Dropped In was a hit in 1968 and was also featured in the Coen Brother film, The Big Lebowski. Here's Kenny on what makes his songs so popular. Interestingly enough, that song was written by a guy I went to high school with, and he played it for me when I was in the new Christie Minstrels, and I said, I want to record that. And he said, I can't let you have it because Sammy Davis Jr. has it on hold, which I thought was pretty interesting in itself. But when I went with the first edition, he said, you can do it if you want. And I just always believed, I think great songs make it to radio. And that's always been my strength is picking music. Every song I've ever recorded, I picked. And there's no question I've had ref- been referenced by other people. But I make the final decision. And they all fall into one of two categories. One is either ballads that say what every man would like to say and every woman would like to hear. If you look through the She Believes in Me, You Decorated My Life Through right. the Years, Lady. And the others are story songs that have social comment. Just dropped in, of course. <laughs> I'm not sure where that falls. But if you look at Ruby, Don't Take Your Love to Town, mm-hmm. it was about a mm-hmm. Vietnam War vet who came back, wanted to kill his wife. Uh, Ruben James was about a black man who raised a white child. Mm-hmm. Coward of the County is about a rape. And a lot of people don't know that. They sing along with it and they go, oh, my God, that's about a rape. Indeed. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Kenny Rogers. But right now, let's take a listen to one of the many great and classic Kenny Rogers songs. More after these messages. This is Our American Story, celebrating the life of Kenny Rogers, born on this day in history. Baby, when I met you, there was peace on I set out to get you with a fine-tooth comb. I was soft inside. There was something going Yeah. 
is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Kenny Rogers and Kim Carnes. And Kenny was just terrific when singing with other people. And so few great and world-class singers partner well with other singers. Kenny loved to let other singers shine, and his duets with Dolly Parton and Kim Carnes are some of the best duet singing you could hear between a man and a woman. And we were talking about Kenny's ballads, but he, he experimented with all kinds of musical genres. Here's Kenny on his musical influences and the secret to his success. Basically, I'm a country singer with a lot of other influences. You know, I started out as a kid listening to country music, but once I got into jazz, I met this guy who was blind and played piano, Bobby Doyle, and he said, I'll teach you to play bass. And I thought, okay, why? He said, because there's more demand for bad bass players than bad guitar players. (laughs) But he gave me such an education of music that it afforded me the opportunity to sing songs that weren't quite so country. I heard something somewhere, and I believe this with all my heart, that people are successful because someone believed in them and they didn't want to let that person down. And I think I've had people as I go through my life, Larry Butler, for one, that took me into the country music area. I was 40 years old, come out of a rock group. And everybody said, it'll never happen. And he said, but I have the right to hire him and I'm going to hire him. And he believed in me and I didn't want to let him down. And by the way, we hear this over and over again from artists. Over and over again, even athletes, remember Brett Favre, talking about those coaches who believed him, and he remembers it searing in his memory. As old as he'll ever get, he'll remember the people who gave him his shot. Despite initially being rejected by the country community, Kenny Rogers found his greatest success in Nashville. He was in his 40s. Here's how Kenny dealt with expectations that he would fail in Nashville. I never thought about them. I mean, I just figured this was my journey and I was going to find a way. You know, they said, you're too pop, you're too old, and and, uh, you have a beard and you have long hair and it's not going to happen. So, you know, I wrote a song called Sweet Music Man that was originally about Waylon Jennings because his wife had said that, all his band were enablers. They let him do whatever he wanted to do, and it broke her heart. Said, but when he starts singing, he's my sweet music man. And I just thought that was such a great statement. Mm-hmm. So I wrote this song, and the first half is all about Waylon. As I started writing the second half, it was about me. I mean, I, I re- it was very cathartic because it was you try to stay young, but the songs you've sung have all begun to come back on you. So I, the next day, I cut my hair, got rid of the glasses, took the earring out of my ear, and I became more real because I think we're all three people. I think I'm who I think I am, I'm who you think I am, and I'm who I really am. And the closer those three are together, the longer your career can last. Okay, look at Dolly Parton. She is what she presents. Waylon Jennings, Johnny Cash. You know, I knew my time was limited, and I talk about it here that anytime you're afraid to play with your image, your time is limited. So... I, you know, I just switched it up. Authenticity, always. In the end, it's what wins. Again, that's another recurring theme in everything we do. And it's the old great Oscar Wilde quote, be yourself, everyone else is taken. Kenny Rogers brought new influences into the country world, including R&B and soul. He collaborated with Lionel Richie. Here's how he convinced the country music establishment that this would work commercially. Well, I just explained to him that that country music is the white man's rhythm and blues. That's where the pain is. And I said, listen to what Lionel writes. He writes conversations. If you listen to Three Times a Lady and Still, it's two people talking. And I said, why would that not work in country music? He's just doing R&B tracks. Let me do his music. Ray Charles did it. And I said, let me do his songs, his lyrics, and put them to country tracks. Indeed, go to our Ray Charles, George on Our Mind 
story of a song because it's terrific. This is exactly how Ray Charles thought about the Hoagie Carmichael song. It was written as a pop standard in Tin Pan Alley. And he took it, this blues guy and this African-American recording artist, and he put some strings and some guitars behind it and turned it into a pop hit. A song is a song, and a great song is a great song. Here's Kenny on singer-songwriter Lionel Richie arriving in Las Vegas to play a song for Kenny to sing. As he sat down at the piano, Lionel said this to Kenny. Now, I have to tell you, I played this for the Commodores, and they rejected it. And I said, okay. So he goes, lady, da 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 that's all he had. And I said, how can they reject that word? I don't get it. You know, so I said, I want to do that. So we go in the studio to record it. I record the first verse. And I said, where's the second verse? He said, well, Lionel's in the toilet writing it right now. Lionel's in the toilet writing it now. That may be one of my favorite lines on Our American Stories. Kenny went on an incredible role in the late 70s and early 80s with songs like Lucille, Lady, Don't Fall in Love with a Dreamer, and his most well-known tune, The Gambler. Here's how he feels about those songs today. Is he sick of being the gambler guy? Oh, I love them. It's, that's artillery. You know, are you kidding? Who wouldn't want to have something like that? It was a, it's a career-making song. And it was, it was voted the greatest country song of all time. Yeah. And, you know, you have to love that. And you, when you perform, you're looking for those kinds of vehicles to go out with. You know what? I, I have this thing about performing. It's not important to me that anybody leaves the show saying he's the best singer I've ever heard. But it's important that everybody leaves saying I enjoyed that. And what's going to make them enjoying it is doing songs they know. So I went to see Ray Charles, who was my hero, mm-hmm. and he didn't do George on my mind. And I was so angry. So I decided I was never not going to do that. So I do every hit every night. I mean, I have no desire to go out and be truly innovative on stage and someone say, wow, I didn't know he could do that. That doesn't interest me. Well, it's about the audience, not him. And by the way, we had just seen Tom Petty not long ago, Jesse and I, and he was just ripping through the hits. And the only thing we were disappointed at is there's not enough time to do all of the hits. So he had to choose some and leave others out. Kenny Rogers admitted to People Magazine even about his plastic surgery. So has aging been hard for Kenny in this youth-oriented music industry? I had the money and I had the time, so I did it. I mean, that, it, those, are, those are the kind of crazy decisions I've made in my life. Someone would say, you know, your eyes are falling. Well, okay, let's go do them. i got nothing to do Tuesday, so <laughs> I'd go do it. And, and, and I enjoyed it. I, I didn't like the outcome of it. But at the same time, I look at myself and I say, I wonder what I'd look like if I hadn't done that. So I'm okay. <laughs> I'm okay. Kenny's been married five times. The first three divorces, he says, are 85% his fault. And he said this, quote, if, if success had been less important, I could have stayed with any one of them. So what's life like for Kenny Rogers today? There's a sustainability, you know, I, and I, I still contend that the longer it takes you to hit your peak, the longer your glide ratio down. Hmm. So in my case, it took me 20 years to be really successful. So I've got a 20-year glide ratio. If you go straight up, you come straight down. But, you know, I, I, I love what I'm doing, and I see no reason to quit. I, I've What I've done is moderated my schedule to the point that I'm home with my boys, I'm home with my wife, and when I work in and around Atlanta, they go with me. So they're a part of the success, you know. And I, and I think that's the key is being able to put yourself in a position financially and mentally that what drives me is not my career now, but my family, but my family allows me my career. 
Well, so good that Kenny has his priorities. The life of Kenny Rogers, born on this day in history in 1938. And as always, our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their terrific and free online courses. And we figured we'd end things with the song, well, the song that Kenny Rogers says he'll always play and the greatest song in the history of country music. Let's take a listen. On a warm summer's evening On a train bound for nowhere I met up with a gambler We were both too tired to sleep So we took turns staring Out the window at the darkness The boredom overtook us And he began to speak He said, son, I made my life Out of reading people's faces And knowing what the cards were by the way they held their eyes So if you don't mind saying I can see you're out of aces For a taste of your whiskey I'll give you some advice So I handed him my bottle And we drank down my last swallow Then he bummed a cigarette And asked me for a light And the night got deathly quiet Face lost all expression Said if you're gonna play the game Boy, you gotta learn to play it right You got to know when to hold them Know when to fold them Know when to walk away Know when to run You never count your money When you're sitting at the table There'll be time enough for counting When the dealing's done This is Our American Stories, and Jesse, I'm not sure what that music is, but it sounds like something off the Shaft or Superfly soundtrack. The Visioneers. Oh, The Visioneers. I love it. I love it. It sounds like something that our, our friend Trenton, Quentin, not Trenton, Quentin Tarantino. It's very California. It is very California. Love it. Recently, we came across an article at the Wall Street Journal about a guy named Kevin who had established his own micronation within the state of Nevada. A micronation is an entity that claims to be an independent nation or state, but is not recognized by world governments or major international organizations. We just had to get to the bottom of this, bottom of this story, and there was no one else on the crew who could do a better job than Jesse. I'm just outside of a small town called Dayton, Nevada, just south of Reno, to visit with a man named Kevin Ball. Kevin is what you might call a crazy person. You're about to find out why. You see, a long time ago, our friend Kevin here decided it might be a good idea to declare himself the president of Molossia. What is Molossia, you might ask? Well, let's ask His Excellency ourselves. Molossia is a micronation. Basically, it's a a tiny, self-declared country. Uh, We sort of see it as a um, expression, self-expression... 
creativity, kind of almost like an art project, but not quite. But also, we want to have everything in Malasia that a regular country would have. That's why we have our own post office, phone system, and so forth like that. Um, Malasia was originally founded uh, in 1977. Uh, my friend James and I, uh, we saw a movie called The Mouse That Roared uh, with Peter Sellers, and we were really struck by the imagination and creativity and the idea of that, mo of that movie. So we decided we wanted to have our own country, which was called the Grand Republic of Volstein. And he, at that time, and um, he was king. I was prime minister, but then he moved on, went to a different school. But I stayed with it over the years. And then once we obtained this property here uh, in northern Nevada, it was really natural to raise the flag and declare it to be a uh, property of our sovereign nation, Malasia. Now, the Republic of Malasia claims to be a sovereign, independent nation state completely surrounded by the United States. And as a result, it's adopted a system of government recognizably similar in structure to that of a sovereign state. I thought we're an autonomous collective. You're fooling yourself. We're living in a dictatorship. A self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes... Oh, there get... you go, bringing class into it again. Well, that's what it's all about. If only people would... Please. Realize... Can someone move to Malasia or apply for citizenship? Well, actually, no. We do not um, allow other people to move in and become, become citizens of Malasia. It's really kind of a family nation, if you will. Uh, we have a lot of people that would like to move here. Um, surprisingly, actually, from the Middle East... It, we have a lot of inquiries, uh, people who want to come here on a regular basis. I, I'll get about a half a dozen a week of folks that want to move here. I think partially because they would like to you know, come into the U.S. to see this as a way to get here. But Malasia is only open to uh, really our current citizens and our family members. Does the United States government care that you've declared yourself a sovereign nation? The U.S. has never really had a problem with Malasia, at least as far as I know. I'm sure they snoop around our website because they tend to do that. But at any rate, they don't really care what we do because we are... Uh, I guess, again, they see it sort of as a, you know, self-expression kind of thing, you know, personal freedom and private property and all that kind of stuff. And that's fine. They leave us alone. Uh, we do pay taxes, but we call it foreign aid. So we give foreign aid to the U.S. to uh, help prop them up. And you've seen their roads, so you see they need all the help they can get. Uh, this guy is absolutely nuts, but I thought he seemed rather harmless. That is until he explained to me that he's been at war with East Germany for some time now. Well, the war with East Germany started back in 1983. Uh, it's really back in the midst of times because I don't honestly remember even starting this war. But at the time, I was the prime minister. It was the Grand Republic of Voldstein at that time. And I was the prime minister. And I was also serving with the U.S. Army in Europe back, back in the Cold War days. So every now and again, they would rost us up out of our sleep and we'd have to jump in our tanks and go, you know, stand a, po a post because it was, you know, the time when you had to sort of do that. Uh, November of, of 83, uh, when I was still prime minister, I guess I was rusted out of my sleep one too many times, so I decided to declare war on East Germany. And I have a nice little war certificate hanging up on the wall right there. I think that's it. Anyway, um, then I forgot all about it. And then a few years ago, I was rooting through my records, and I pulled this thing out. And I said, well, that's kind of cute. That's neat. And I happened to do a little research and discovered that East Germany still exists in the form of a tiny island off the coast of Cuba. It's called Ernst Tailman Island, and it was given by Cuba to East Germany back in 1970-something, three, I think. Uh, Fidel Castro gave it to the to the yeah. East Germany. Um, I guess it was sort of a symbolic thing, but essentially it became East German territory. They have a little statue a statue there on there and so forth. And it was never addressed in the Unification Treaty. 
So it was sort of like one of those limbo kind of things. Uh, so I guess we're still at war with East Germany. At least that's how we're going with it. Now there's nobody on this island. It's uninhabited except for marine iguanas. So uh, <laughs> I guess those would be the only existing East Germans out there are marine iguanas. And because we can't go there, because we are still subject, unfortunately, to U.S. You know, restrictions of traveling to Cuba, we can't really you know, engage in peace with the marine iguanas there. And uh, so we will probably be at war with East Germany forever for as long as at least the embargo goes on, as we would like to go there someday. It looks like a really pretty place. Making peace with marine iguanas. I mean, look at this guy. He's dressed up like a war general, strutting around his property like Fidel Castro. And in the middle of all this, he somehow managed to land himself a wife. Or as he calls her, the first lady. I met the first lady uh, through uh, MySpace, which is really not that popular anymore, but it was a big thing back a few years ago. And uh, we had both been to the same concert, of all things. And I noticed her, she noticed me, kind of thing. And uh, we sort of started communicating that way. And she, I didn't really present myself as kind of like a, it's like a, it's like a separate thing. It was my civilian me, my non-president me, and then the president me. I didn't really present myself as the president, just as the guy down the road. But, you know, being a smart lady, and she is, uh, she Googled me and figured out <laughs> that I was, in fact, the president of the country. And she liked that. She thought it was a pretty cool idea. So she came into our relationship, and it's been almost five years now, came into our relationship knowing that I was the president of the country and very happy with it. And uh, she's had a good time with it ever since. What are some of like your house rules or laws, I guess you would call them? Uh, like all countries, Malasia uh, has its own customs, uh, standards, and there are certain things that can't be brought into the country. Um, they are rather unique because we are a rather unique country. Uh, no walruses are allowed in the country. Uh, there was a cartoon strip called Bloom County a few years ago. And one of the opening splash things always was a, always a little sign next to a meadow under a tree. And one time it said, no walruses. And my, my uh, number two son and I thought that was pretty funny. So we put that on there. Uh, no catfish can be brought in the country. It's not like we have a problem with catfish here in Malazi. We're in the desert. But they're banned because we were going to be in FHM Magazine a few years ago. And FHM Magazine bumped us for an article about guys that catch catfish with their hands. They're called noodlers. So that's a couple things uh, that you can't bring. No plastic bags, bad for the environment. No incandescent light bulbs, also bad for the environment. Uh, because we are a unique country, we do have our own measurement system. It's called uh, the Kokens measurement system. And the uh, basic element that would probably apply to most folks is called the Norton. And this is a Norton. It's my hand. It's about seven inches long. And uh, if you ever have to measure something, you go somewhere, you can use your hands to measure. It's kind of convenient. But we really did that to be unique. We have our own time zone. Uh, we are 39 minutes ahead of Pacific time or 21 behind mountain, whichever way you want to be, be driving. And we, again, did that to be a little bit different. And just a few months after we adopted our own time zone, uh, President Chavez of Venezuela adopted his own, the late President Chavez, adopted his own time zone off by about 15 minutes or something like that. Now, where do you think he got the idea? Right here. Absolutely. So we kind of do our own thing. We have a good time with Malasia. Now, do you, do you always dress like that? I dress like a dictator. Well, I mean, because it's kind of a style and thing to do. But... Anyway, uh, I wanted to be a little bit different. There are a lot of micronations out there, and almost everybody wants to be a king or a prince or a duke or an emperor or something along that line, and I wasn't really feeling like I was royalty. It wasn't my thing. So wanting to be different, we deliberately uh, adopted this is a dictatorship. Malasi is a dictatorship. Kind of handy when I'm sort of the head of the household anyway. It's a family country. And so, uh, and we have, you know, have a good time. It's a, it's a benign, benevolent dictatorship. It's a family country, he says. Kevin Ball. One of a kind, the micro nation of Malasia. Look them up, pay them a visit. Your family might be a little upset and confused, especially if they're expecting Disneyland and you took them here. But that's the way it goes sometimes. This is our American stories. Uh. 
Thank you for that, Jesse. He has his own time zone. We should start that here because I'm always 15 minutes late. I should have my own time zone. And and by the way, was he as was he like a, a just a as crazy off oh, the yeah, air? Pretty much, just he, bad. Exactly what you heard. Bad out there, crazy. Yeah. Nice guy though. Hey, that's what we do here in our American stories. And if you know somebody who's a dictator of his own nation, if you're a dictator of your own nation, call, share your story. If you want to be, this is our American stories, Kevin. The dictator, the head honcho of Malasia, somewhere in northern Nevada. This is Our American Stories, where we love to bring you great stories about love, death, music, sports, work, every sphere of American life. And we especially love to hear your stories. And make sure you go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and write to us with your story, and we'll help you record it. Today's story is brought to us by Dana Mish. And she shares with us a piece of her family's story, a piece that occurred at Buchenwald, one of the very first Nazi concentration camps and the largest one on German soil. And it's a story that she shared in the publication, The Times of Israel, and she graciously recorded it for us. Here's Dana. A few months ago, I stood at Buchenwald in a large open field that was covered in an endless expanse of rocky gray gravel. The ground that I gazed at before me was where the barracks once had been. On that unnaturally humid and sunny afternoon, thunder ominously clapped from heavy storm clouds that loomed off in the distance. The skies certainly echoed my state of mind. As for anyone that visits a concentration camp, it was a particularly sobering and gut-wrenching experience. But for me, it was more than just emotional. It was personal. Why was I there? to learn about my grandfather, who had stood on that very ground some 78 years prior, and reconnect with his life, his journey, his story. The morning after Kristallnacht, at the age of 25, my grandfather was arrested by the SS and taken to Buchenwald as a part of the special pogrom the first ever mass deportation and internment of Jews at that camp. He arrived on November 13, 1938, before the barracks were even built. And for three or four days and nights, he waited among 10,000 other Jews in the freezing winter rain to receive a roof over his head and a 20-centimeter-wide wooden sleeping plank. Many who were there with him during that time didn't survive, and I will always remember the tears that came to my grandfather's eyes in the video interview we have of him, as he hesitatingly rehashed the horrors that befell those around him, frequently and at random. He was one of all too few who was miraculously able to flee Germany during the Holocaust, and I owe my life to his luck.
But his journey wasn't over when he got to the United States. Mere weeks after officially becoming an American, he was drafted into the army. He was shipped off to Europe, back into the eye of the storm, just five years after his time at Buchenwald. And as a soldier in a replacement depot, despite only having gone through basic training, no infantry training, he was nevertheless thrown into combat during the Battle of the Bulge. He fought against the Nazis with the ultimate goal of invading his homeland and, yet again, narrowly lived to tell the tale. He ended up living a very full life. He passed away in 1999 at the age of 85, when I was just 11 years old. But as for my return to Buchenwald, it was actually another more recent death in the family that served as the catalyst. By the time I stood on the same ground that my grandfather had this past September, my father had been gone from us for nine months. He was my grandfather's firstborn, and he had wanted to be able to share his dad's heroic story with the world. So my visit, both to Buchenwald and also afterward to my grandfather's hometown, was to remember the two of them, my grandfather's persistence and my own father's admiration. It was to pay homage to the sacrifices they made and the pride they held in raising a family, in continuing our lineage. The reasons behind my journey ebbed and flowed in my mind as I read a passage that was embedded in stone amongst the gray gravel I stood on at the camp. It read, So that the generations to come might know, the children yet to be born, that they too may rise and declare to their children. As a member of the third generation of Holocaust survivors in the U.S., this struck a chord with me. Living now at a distance, both across generations and oceans, from the horrible tragedy that resulted from Hitler's Nazi regime, I had always felt somewhat detached from it. In fact, few of my friends knew the extent of my grandfather's story. That is, until I recently chose to rise and declare it. And now, as my own father's firstborn, carrying forward his lineage, it's something that I too am committed to rising and declaring for future generations as well. There's something sacred about the kind of cycle created by generations, which is really just to say, people that share a heritage over time. And in Judaism, we observe these sacred cycles that connect us with our earliest ancestors in one way the most, through the high holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. In that light, it should come as no surprise that the name of the book that we use on these holidays, the Machzor, shares the same root with the Hebrew word for return, Chazarah. We reliably return to these traditions, thus completing a sacred cycle, to remind us of all that we have inherited and all that we will carry forward. When distilled down to their roots, that's what Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah are all about, respectively. Remembering and thinking back on our past and looking into the future. As I stood at Buchenwald several months ago, on the ground that held all that it did, 
My present moment joined together the history that came before me and my future yet to come. Through that return I made into a difficult past, one that altered destinies and set my own life into motion so many years ago, I began a kind of intergenerational remembering. But I also felt that I began a kind of healing. Because in that moment, I realized that even though my grandfather and father were both gone, I still carried parts of them within me that I would perpetuate into the future. This year, my hope is that we can all make our own important returns, whether they're on foot or in our minds. Because when we seek out the source of who we are, we end up moving forward into the new year with the two things that have always kept us firmly rooted. Remembrance and hope. And thank you for that, Dana. And in her story, Dana mentioned a video interview of her grandfather, and we asked her about it, and she said it was done by the Shoah Foundation, a group founded by Steven Spielberg, to capture video interviews with survivors and witnesses of Shoah, the Hebrew term to describe the Holocaust. And their work has since expanded into documenting many more genocides. In total, they've captured a whopping 55,000 video testimonies. Here's a clip from their interview with Dana's granddad, Arthur Hecht, who was 83 years old at the time and recalled his time at Buchenwald. They had roll calls, you know, we had to stand outside. And in front of you, left and you, right of you, and back of us, they were killing people. You have no idea how. You have no idea. With spades, with, you have no idea. That I pulled through was just a miracle. And here's one more clip of Arthur talking about why the Nazis allowed him to leave the concentration camp in its early days. Only because I could leave Germany at that time. When you could leave Germany, they let you out. And I had to sign that I leave within four weeks or three weeks. I leave to Germany. If not, I go back to the, to the concentration camp again. Leaving wouldn't be an option later on. It's estimated that 240,000 prisoners went through Buchenwald and 56,545 died there, a death rate of 24%. 8,483 of them were shot dead. 1,100 were hanged. 154 died from being used as human experiments, ranging from testing vaccines to determining the precise fatal dose of a poison. Two Austrian priests were crucified upside down. These are realities that most of us are unaware of. We know of these concentration camps as among the darkest moments in human history, but we don't truly know their stories and the stories of the people who were there. And here on Our American Stories, we're committed to telling those stories. The Americans who are here because of some of the great heroic things that happened, some just by luck, and also some of the memories of people who, well, didn't survive. All of it here on Our American Stories. And thanks to Dana Mish and the Shoah Foundation for sharing the Hecht's family story. And if you want to see two great documentaries, The Sorrow and the Pity and Shoah are outstanding. They're highly recommended here from this show. 
Again, thanks to Dana and her family. Their story here on Our American Stories. our American stories and we tell stories of all kinds here on this show and that's love stories death stories, war stories stories about our history and our nation's history stories about sports, the arts you name it and we talk about law enforcement a lot and our nation's military, the men and women who serve this country and mostly almost uniformly with honor and with dignity and today we're joined by a local his book is Confessions of an Undercover Agent Adventures, Close Calls and the toll of a double life. And Charlie Spillers joins us now. Charlie, thanks for joining us. Well, you thanks for having me on. Let's talk about what we always do when we start this show. Let's talk about beginnings. You were born in Louisiana. And by the way, my wife and I got married in New Orleans. So we love this part of the country. Of all the cities in the country to get married, this Jersey boy found himself in the heart of Cajun country, the capital of Cajun country. My wife was born and raised in Biloxi. And so the home city of Biloxi is New Orleans, as you know. Talk about how that rich Cajun history formulated and formed and helped inform your life. Yeah, I briefly wrote about that in the book, uh, about the fact that my uh, great-grandparents, who lived near New Iberia, Louisiana, couldn't understand or speak English, only Cajun French. So my parents would have to interpret. And whenever I'd stay in summers with my grandparents, the neighborhood ladies would come over and join my grandmother for coffee on hot summer days and gossip. And sometimes uh, villagers would drop by and talk to my grandfather, who was a renowned hunter and trapper. And they would lapse into French at times. And I would watch. I couldn't understand it, but I became fascinated by their body language and movements. And I realized that later on, when I was working undercover, I was had learned an early lesson about how people are reacting to things by watching the body language. So that was a key part of helping me survive and succeed in later years, besides the fact that it's a rich, rich culture. You bet. And by the way, what people say and how people think and feel, the dissonance is usually only understood by sight. Right. And so it's, that's an important lesson you learned. By the way, I want to quote one thing from the book. You said, in addition to Cajun French and Cajun hospitality, their home was filled, and of course you're talking about your grandparents, their home was filled with the delicious aromas and tastes of Cajun cooking. Game stews made with thick brown roux, steaming chicken and sausage gumbos, spicy jambalaya, crawfish etouffee, and crawfish bisque, and I'm getting hungry already, Charlie. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about your dad. He was a tool pusher in the oil fields. But his work helped shape your life because, well, tool guys, oil guys, oil field guys move a lot. And so you moved a lot. I want to quote you from your book again and then hear your response. I was always the new student, the outsider, the stranger walking hesitantly into a classroom filled with kids who'd grown up together. How did this help you become the person you are today? Well, you can 
imagine years later when I'm trying to find some way to infiltrate criminal groups, I'm walking into people that I don't know, complete strangers. There's that same sense of dread and and being anxious about it, only more so undercover. But exposed to those experiences early on, about once every three years, moving towns, new schools and all that, it helped me learn to adapt to new situations, to find ways to become friends with people. And so that was a broadening experience, a very broadening experience for me. Yeah, stepping into new situations, you either had to learn to adapt or there was going to be a lot of suffering, I would assume, Charlie. Let's talk about the next important uh, chapter and phase in your life, and that's the U.S. Marine Corps. Talk about those weeks in Paris Island, because in order to make the Corps, you got to make it through the cut and the tough circumstances at Paris Island. How did that help shape your, your life? Paris Island was hard. It was a hard 13 weeks, and it changed my life. I became part of something that was bigger than me, and uh, that's where I learned that no matter how difficult something might seem or how impossible, you can do it. You can achieve things you think are impossible, and that has carried me through all my careers as in law enforcement as a federal prosecutor, later on as uh, the uh, Department of Justice at that shape of rock. All these difficult things, they don't phase me anymore. I know they might be difficult and hard, but I know some way I can do it. For instance, in the Marines, if somebody says, take that hill, you don't say, well, I don't have enough men. I don't have enough equipment. We're tired. We're worn out. Whatever it takes, you take that heel, and that's carried me through, and I'm sure other Marines do. Yeah, no doubt, and some of our heroes on this show, we did an hour on Fred Smith, who, of course, built up FedEx, and he said, look, everything I needed to know, I didn't learn in business school. I didn't learn in college. I learned it in the U.S. Marine Corps, and you know when Fred's saying that, that he means it. It's not just a a platitude. Let's talk about Vietnam. You were there. I think what people always wonder is, most Americans have experienced Vietnam through two or three movies. Apocalypse Now, The Deer Hunter, uh, so on and so forth. Right. Uh, talk about your experience in Vietnam, what you saw, and what that was like. Well, I was there in 66, and uh, we were engaged in, I was a Marine squad leader. We were engaged in what I would call, describe light combat. Of course, if you're killed or grievously wounded, any combat is terrible. But we were involved in firefights with V.C., ambushes, and things like that. One thing that I don't think people understand about combat, at least, for instance, in Vietnam, is how it wears you down. Sleeping in two-hour segments and then on watch two hours from your foxhole. Sleeping two hours, then on watch. And then all day, you're up, you're patrolling, and that next night you might be out on ambushes, you're eating sea rations, you're not getting as much food, you're losing weight, you're tired all the time, you're worn down, and when you're out in the bush, you're carrying all this equipment, you're loaded down with it, you're exhausted, you're dirty all the time. It takes stamina, it takes endurance, and it takes that will not to just sit down and say, I quit, you've got to keep going. And then, of course, you have sometimes boredom, and then all of a sudden, a terrifying moment the uh, ambush erupts, gunfire just cracks by your head. And it's after that that the adrenaline dump goes away. And after that, when you start feeling like, 
oh my God, you know, that was, oh, that was close, or, or you start feeling things, but you're so busy in combat, you don't have time to feel that. And hold that thought, Charlie. We'll be right back to talk about life after Vietnam and after the Marine Corps. We're talking to Charlie Spillers, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. More after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We're joined today by Charlie Spillers, author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And we were just talking about Charlie's upbringing in Cajun country, joining the Marine Corps, and experiencing firsthand the stresses and boredom of combat duty in Vietnam. And Charlie, you came home from Vietnam, and you meet a girl. And thank goodness, I mean, what would happen to us if we didn't? We'd be living under a bridge and drinking, most men. And then you tried to live an ordinary life after meeting your bride. You tried to live a domesticated life and settled down and joined the phone company, of all things. How did that work out for you? Uh, and that was fine. It was Southern Bell Telephone Company in North Carolina. And uh, I was a technician, and it was a very, very good job. But after about a year, I got to missing the excitement that I'd found in the Marines. And also, I was also pulled by a sense of duty. So I, I applied for a job in law enforcement. I took a job as a uniform uh, police officer, making less pay than I was making with the phone company. And my work day went from a regular five-day work week to a six-day work week. That's without overtime. Simply because I wanted to, you know, experience that adventure and excitement and also sense of duty of doing something meaningful so uh and by the way your wife had to be thrilled with this decision <laughs> because that's what all wives want they want you to be away more and make less lee the people who have read the book so many of them had said your wife is the real hero and for those who have read the book you see what she went through you see some encounters she had that were uh, terrifying he really was and is the hero of the book. Yep. And let's talk about Baton Rouge because this is where you cut your teeth in law enforcement. And it doesn't take long for you to get a certain specific role and job inside the Baton Rouge Police Department, and that is intelligence. So this right. begins your life into this space called undercover. Right, exactly. I was in uniform patrol for two months, and... Uh, the captain who was uh, in charge of the intelligence division asked to come see me at my apart- at our apartment. And he came over, we had coffee, and uh, he told me he was head of the intelligence unit. He asked me if I would volunteer to go undercover. I had no idea what that meant, but it sounded exciting. So I said, oh, yeah. And he said, well, don't report back to your ship and stay away from police headquarters. That started my 10-year undercover career, you know, six years with the Baton Rouge PD and uh, my first five years with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics later on. So during that first six or eight months, I was immersed as an undercover officer in intelligence 
And my job was to infiltrate the burglary rings, safe cracker rings, just the criminal groups. And therefore, my office became the local bars. There were two or three local bars where some of those groups hung out, and that was basically their headquarters. And so my nights would be spent there, and we would all gather at a you know, particular table or tables pulled together, and normally the bar owner you know, knew everybody, and the dancers, bar girls would come over and sit during their break. It was all a social group, but it was also a criminal group. And so um, usually uh, I'd get home maybe 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, or I'd get home a day or two later after I went out. And that was the thing that was uh, hard, especially hard on my wife. When I left to go out, she never knew if I'd be back in two hours writing some reports or if I'd be back uh, late that night or early in the morning or two days later. She never knew. You could never plan anything. I never knew. Yep. And I would assume that, and you indicate this in the book, you know, if you're a member of the police department, you get to do the cookouts with the police department. You get to hang out in the in the streets with the police department, do the community building, the community relations. You're wearing the uniform. Folks get to know you. And here, you get none of these what I call social benefits of being in the police department. You're a lone wolf in a, in a sense. You've got a, maybe a couple of other guys you work with. You report. Some of the cops might even, not even know that you're undercover. Talk about what that strain was like on your wife and obviously on you, but I think more, look, you picked the profession. So in some respects, you are hardwired for stress. You're hardwired for this. But, you know, the average wife is not hardwired for this any more than the average military wife whose husband goes off for three years or a year to Iraq or to, or to Germany in World War II or to, North, or to Korea. Uh, talk about your wife, because it, it did really interest me in the book, the, that her role in this. Yeah, uh, we couldn't let our neighbors know I was a police officer. Even though they were good, fine people and they were trustworthy, you, an undercover agent gets burned down normally through someone trusted, telling a trusted friend, who tells a trusted friend and a trusted friend, next thing you know, it's out on the street that, hey, there's an undercover agent that's working and uh, with penetrated such and such a group. Or if you're in a small town and you're the stranger in town and it gets out, there's an undercover agent in the area, all fingers point at you. So that's your biggest threat, one of your biggest threats of compromise. So she couldn't tell neighbors. And sometimes we'd have a cover story about how we, you know, I made my money at the time. She was working, I believe, as a secretary about how I made my money. And we couldn't go out together. I mean, we might go out to the grocery store together every now and then, perhaps to a movie every now and then, but we had to be very careful. And I describe in the book how a couple times when we went out, we encountered criminals I was working on. And I couldn't let them see my wife and I together because she looked straight. And it would be out of character for me to be with you. Know, what are you doing with her? Yeah. I remember in one particular instance in the book, you sort of just drift away from your wife. She sort of gets it. And she walks away and goes to the movie theater. And you walk in another direction. And then you get back together hours later. Yeah, exactly. I, when I saw them and we were walking across the street to the entrance to the theater, all of a sudden... I whispered, keep walking, keep walking, keep walking. And then I veered off to the bad guys, and she just kept, I mean. She knew just what to do. She knew what to do, but she didn't know it through training. She knew it through instinct, instinct. and fear, yeah. which she handled well. 
And if she sees you afraid or, is, or you sensing fear, she knows that there's something up right. and just move. Right, like when the, uh, when the uh, drug dealer came to our house and saw her out back, and he pointed to a, we were living in a mobile home. He pointed to it at home, and he said, hey, does Mike live there? And I was using the name Mike. Right. And she immediately knew what that was. And she was out back with our little two- or three-year-old son, you know, at the little playground. And she said, oh, I don't know who lives there. And so she got Terry, our son, and she went off in a different direction. She went around out of sight. Then she came back and looked. She didn't see him. Here's what she was thinking. I had gone off to go to the convenience store. She was thinking, Charlie, be back. I need to go warn him that this man's, I need to warn him. So even though she knew the danger was there, she rushed back to the, to the trailer, and I was head back inside. And she came inside, and she said, Charlie, Charlie. And she closed the door, and she was looking out the curtain. Charlie, Charlie, somebody's out there was asking for Mike. And I said, what? She said, yeah. And she told me, and I jumped up and grabbed my gun, and I went to the windows and started looking around all over, holding my gun. But at the same time, not only to you know defend and protect us, but at the same time thinking I've got to keep calm for her too. So I'm looking all over, and Finally, I go out, go out, and I say, lock the door behind me. Don't let anybody in but me. And I go out, and I walk around. Then I, I go back and say, I'll be back in a moment. I get in my car, and I, I go all over for 15, 20 minutes. I even park and watch cars because it's a threat. It's a threat, but I don't see anything. So finally, satisfied that, well, we're okay, I go back to the house, the trailer, and I go inside and say, look, everything's okay. Uh, I think we're all right. I go back to writing reports at the table and uh, of a recent buy, a drug buy or something. And she says, well, after a little while, I'm going to the store. So she leaves. And Terry, our son's in the bed sleeping, and there's a knock on the door after she left. And I go to the door, and I open the door, and I look down. It's the drug dealer, Euro. And he looks up at me, and he says, hey, Mike. What are you thinking then? Yep. Why all of a sudden is your heart and your mind doing then? Bam, bam, bam. So there were situations like that. And uh, she went through that, and it was terrifying for her. But she handled it well. And yes, she did. We're talking with Charlie Spillers, a man who has served the public in so many ways as a U.S. Marine in Vietnam, as an undercover cop for 10 years, and then later as a career federal prosecutor, and last as a Justice Department attache in Iraq when things were really hot. Charlie's book, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. It's a must-read, and more with Charlie and his stories here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're continuing our conversation with Charlie Spillers, author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and The Toll of a Double Life. And now let's get straight to one of the best stories in the book, and it's about a woman and a woman very close to you. Talk about her. That's my undercover partner with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, Sarah Neal. She and I worked together undercover in Jackson, pretending to be a Mississippi, pretending to be a couple to infiltrate heroin trafficking rings. When we were finished, I went down to the Gulf Coast and started driving a taxi cab as a cover to infiltrate the rings down that way. She went to South Mississippi. While she was in South Mississippi, an agent in North Mississippi asked Sarah to come and join him to do a heroin by bust of four ounces of heroin. So Sarah drove up to Columbus, Mississippi, met the agent, and the drug dealer had told, the heroin dealer had told the agent, look, drive outside of Columbus on this narrow two-lane road, drive about 12 or 15 miles until you see my car parked on the shoulder of the road, and when you see my car, you park on the other shoulder of the road, and we'll do the deal in the middle of the road. And don't worry, don't worry, there are no houses around. Hardly anyone uses the road, and it's level there for a mile or two in both directions. If anybody, other cars on the road, we'll see them uh, in plenty of time, you know. So it's like being on the moon, remote and isolated. So that day, Sarah and her partner, Jerry Dittman, drove out in the undercover car. And all agents on surveillance had to stay back out of sight because of the road, so Sarah and Jerry were really on their own, and it was sleeting some that day. It was miserable, almost around time for Thanksgiving, and as they drove out that road, they saw the heroin dealer's car. They parked on the other side of the road. While Sarah waited in the undercover car, the agent, Jerry, got out, and he met the heroin dealer in the middle of the road. He pulled out a $10,000 flash roll, the heroin dealer produced the four ounces, and when he did, the agent, Jerry, pulled out his gun and yelled, police, you're under arrest, you're under arrest, hands up. And when he did, on the heroin dealer's side of the road, across the field, 75 yards away, was the heroin dealer's brother with a 30-30 rifle. And he had the undercover agent, Jerry Dittman, in his sights. And he had his finger on the trigger. And when Jerry yelled, police, the man pulled the trigger, bam, bam. And Jerry got hit. And he staggered in the road. Bam! The man kept shooting. Deadman, Jerry Deadman, staggering in the road. He couldn't see where the man was shooting from, but he could tell it was from a tree line. And Jerry started blindly just emptying his pistol toward the tree line. Pow, pow, pow. Meanwhile, the man shooting back. Bam, bam. Sarah Neal, the undercover agent, is in the undercover car on the other side of the road. She's in relative safety. She could stay there, scrunch down, or get down, crouch behind the car. But instead, she saw her fellow agent staggering in the road. Bam! He got hit a second time. Sarah jumped out of the car without hesitating, ran around the front of the car with just her little Model 65 shot 38 toward her partner. She ran into the danger zone, the killing zone, and as she did, the heroin dealer in the road went for his gun, and Sarah popped off a shot. Pow! It hit the man in the hand. Sarah got to Jerry Deadman, the agent, and as she did, bam, Jerry got shot a third time. The rifleman was shooting at both of them. Pow, pow. Sarah grabbed Jerry, pulled him to her side of the road. They tumbled down an embankment. And when they got down there, 
Jerry rode over, flat on his back. Sarah scrambled up, watching the skyline with her gun for the bad guys. She looked over at Jerry, and she saw he was covered with blood. And she thought, he's going to die. I've got to get him to the hospital, or he's going to die. So without hesitating, she got down, she pulled him to his feet, and she started tugging him up the embankment, still holding her gun with one hand, and thinking the bad guys were up there. She got him to the top. The bad guys were gone. She got Jerry to the undercover car, and he was bleeding all over her. She put him down in the back seat, and he was bleeding over the back seat, and about that time, surveillance cars roared up and started fanning out for the bad guys. Sarah raced back to Columbus. She found the hospital. She took him into the emergency room, and the emergency rooms weren't equipped then like they were now. A nurse said, here, put him in this room right here, and they put him on a table. And the nurse said, let me go see if I can find a doctor anywhere in the hospital. And the nurse left. And Sarah was there along with Jerry bleeding. And as she was there after a couple of minutes, she heard hollering at the entrance that she'd come in. Somebody was hollering, ah, ah, Sarah stepped out of the room and she looked. And coming through the doors was a man holding his right hand. Help me, help me, help me, my hand, it hurts, help me. Yes, yes. It was the gunman she had shot in the road. The heroin dealer she had shot in the road. Help me. Sarah stepped back in the room, reached in her purse and got her gun and handcuffs, and she went out and arrested him. Yes, she arrested him. She put him on the floor of the emergency waiting room on his stomach. She knelt down and started handcuffing him behind his back. And as she did, he yelled, Don't put him on too tight. It hurts too bad. Don't put him on too tight. So she made sure she put him on. A tad too tight. Ah! The only one around was an elderly gentleman sitting there watching all this with big eyes like he was watching a movie. And Sarah bent over the man she had arrested, looked at him, said, Mister, Mister, would you watch him? Would you watch him? I need to get back to my partner. And if he moves just an inch, would you yell out? Would you do that? Yes, ma'am. So she went back with her partner. They found a doctor. Other agents flooded in from around the state. And... This happened about noontime, about midnight. Agents finally convinced Sarah to go get some rest because she had driven up that day, four-hour drive, been through this. Go, go find a motel room, get some rest. So she drove into downtown Columbus. It was sleeting. The lights were off. No cars were out. It looked like an abandoned town late at night. She found the Holiday Inn. There were only a few people there, and they put her in a back building, she double-locked the doors because the rifleman, the shooter, was still uh, loose. And she took a shower. And when she did, she took her gun to the shower with her and had it in there. Finally, she got in bed, maybe about 2 in the morning. Well, if that happened to you, would you go off right to a contented sleep? Well, she didn't either. She tossed and she turned. And finally, maybe a half an hour before daylight, she finally fell into an exhausted sleep, and at daylight, the phone next to the bed rang and woke her up. It was an agent at the hospital. She called in, left word where she was, and the agent said, Sarah, I've been, been here awake all night. Can you come relieve me? And Sarah Neal got up after a half hour sleep, and she got dressed. But the only clothes she had were those she had worn the day before because she thought she was going to be back in South Mississippi that night. So she put on jeans that were, had blood all over them. 
a blouse with blood all over it and a jacket with blood all over it. And she drove back to the hospital. Sarah Neal stayed at the hospital all day, oftentimes fighting to stay awake. That night, around 8 o'clock or so, she finally left, driving back to Columbia, to uh, South Mississippi. It was uh, 210 miles, a four-hour drive on the back roads. And the whole way, the whole way, she fought to stay awake at the wheel, still wearing those bloody clothes. You know what she did the next morning? Next morning, she got up and went back to work as an MBN agent. She later received an award from Parade Magazine, which used to be the, the popular supplement Sunday papers, award as one of the 10 outstanding federal, state, and, law and, and local law enforcement agents in the nation. They flew her out to an award ceremony in uh, Los Angeles. But I love that story. I love that story because many people didn't know about it at the time, and they certainly didn't know about the details. And I love that story because, to me, that story is about the people we have in law enforcement today, the men and women in federal, state, and law enforcement today, that courage, that dedication that's exemplified by Sarah Neal and Jerry Debman. That's the kind of folks we have serving us today. And when we come back, more from Charlie Spillers, his terrific book, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with Charlie Spillers, author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And, you know, Charlie, a lot of people know about the Italian Mafia and the big city mafias of New York and Boston and, and Chicago, and we've seen countless movies about that kind of mafia. But you infiltrated a very different kind of mafia, the Dixie Mafia, which is a whole different animal. There's no city to hide in. There's lots of open land. People know each other. And everybody in these rural areas is tight-knit. But that's exactly why the Dixie Mafia was so successful. Right. And, of course, over several states, a, uh, it's a loose network that of criminals, career criminals, engaged in everything from auto theft to uh, armed robberies to, uh, and by armed robberies, normally they would pick out targets, like somebody living in a rural area or on the edge of a town who who reportedly has a lot of money in their safe or in their home, and they'll put on ski masks and do a home invasion. And what they, what they might do is something like this. Let's say there's a couple uh, Dixie Mafia people who live around Calhoun City, and they're well-known. And that's Mississippi. Right, Calhoun City, Mississippi, south of Oxford, very rural. Uh, they're well-known. But they happen to be talking with people in town, and somebody just mentions somebody who's spent a lot of money, and all of a sudden— They'll target that person. And what they'll do is maybe they'll call Dixie Mafia members in Oklahoma who will come down and do the actual hit, the actual home and the robbery, and then they'll split up the money. Or somebody in Oklahoma or northeast Mississippi or somewhere else will see some kind of a scam target and then call others to come do it, and they split split up. So they come together in these little tight-knit conspiracies to, to do things. Uh, and 
that most of the time they're facing rural understaffed law enforcement agencies, and they're operating over a multi-state area. So they're hard to target. They're hard to work on. And they're also very dangerous. So in northeast Mississippi was the auto theft capital of the U.S. It had a reputation nationwide among law enforcement agencies as being the area that had a lot of chop shops where they chop up stolen cars and stolen car rings, and they were Dixie Mafia-connected people. And so when our agency, I was with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, they came up with $10,000 of special funds that could be used for buying stolen cars. Uh, I volunteered. I was excited when I heard that. I volunteered to go up to northeast Mississippi to see if I could infiltrate them. And I had no idea how I would do it when I volunteered. But after I went up, I met two sisters, two big old girls that were real rough who were cooperating. And they were on the edges of these groups. And they were cooperating. And they said, yeah, they would introduce me and vouch for me. Uh, But it's hard to break in. I need more than that. So I told the two girls, I said, well, look, Here's what I want you to do for two weeks before I ever show up. I want you to just talk to people about me. Every now and then mention Mike. Oh, our man Mike down in Alabama, he's going to be coming up. Boy, he's so bad, he'll cut off your head and crap on your neck. And I said, wait, wait a minute. Don't tell them something that bad when I heard about it. Oh, my God. But anyway, they, so they <laughs> spread the story. They spread the story that I was, uh, I was a real criminal. I was big in uh, auto theft, and I was at a higher level because I thought, what I needed to do, I couldn't come in as an auto thief because, you know, they would know too quickly, and they all know each other. I needed to come in at a higher level than the rest of them, like I'm a some kind of boss in an organization. So I, as I came in, I came in as, like I said, a boss of a multi-state organization that helped dispose of stolen cars. And I still needed to break in, though. So I had the girls introduce me to the owner of a pawn shop who I knew was connected with these people. And uh, I showed up and said, hey, man, I'm Mike. Yeah, they told me you're okay. I can talk with you. He said, yeah, 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 yeah. They told me you're okay, too. I said, hey, uh, uh, I want to see if you might be interested in some TVs. My people took off a truckload of televisions. Don't don't worry, don't worry. There's no heat around here. It was in another state. Uh, We've already gotten rid of it. But there's a couple TVs left over. I just want to get rid of them. Would you be interested? He looked at me real carefully, kind of scrutinized me, and then he said, well, what kind? How much? So then I knew it was okay. So we struck a deal. I quoted a price where they had to have been stolen. And so we arranged for me to deliver to him the next day after his business closed. So the next morning I went to another town to Walmart, and I bought two brand-new TVs. And I left them in the box but stripped all the markings off so they couldn't be traced, you know, by the box. And then delivered those to him as uh, coming off the stolen shipment. He vouched for me and a week later introduced me to two guys involved in auto thefts and burglaries. And I wind up dealing with them. In fact, one of them later showed me about 37 rifles they had stolen from a collector, real quality rifles that they were wanting to unload. And they took me out in the country and showed them to me and... We took one of them up in AR-18, I think it was, and fired it several times and all that. But uh, later on, one night I was riding with the two criminals, and one of them said, hey, look, uh, my such-and-such, it was a relative of his, lives on that 
that hill up there in that house, uh, he's supposed to have about 100000 in his safe. Of course, he can't hide. He's hiding that from the government. Now, what we want to do is we want to rob it and get it, but even with ski masks, he didn't know it was us. So how about you doing it? But you see, that's the, that's yep. the way those folks are. Yep. But anyway, so I got, got involved with uh, infiltrating the uh, auto theft rings and uh, buying stolen vehicles from uh, Corvettes to um, tractor-trailer trucks. In fact, tractor-trailer truck just completely full of boxes of furniture from one of the furniture plants. Um, a brand-new BMW just stolen off the new car lot in Chicago 12 hours before and driven down. Nice deal for $2,200. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I got some real real bargains, but uh, that was exciting. Don't buy a used car for this man. <laughs> yeah, don't buy a used car. For Whatever me. you do. Yeah, no warranty. And now, Charlie, let's talk a little bit about your life after a decade of working undercover. Your career really is remarkable. Because, Charlie, you ran every, every avenue of law enforcement. It's very rare to go from a, a cop to then Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics. You were in quickly... You spent your time in undercover work, which is, I think, the most stressful and some of the most important work that can happen. And then you go over to the prosecutor side, but not just any prosecutor. I mean, you end up in a U.S. attorney's office. So talk about that segue from being the guy on the street to the guy in the suit. And I, I've often in my life, I have a law degree, noticed sometimes there's a, a, a tension between the suits, the prosecutors and the cops. Sometimes they like the suits, sometimes they don't like the suits. More often than not, I've seen very good relationships, but it's a very different mindset. And sometimes the cops aren't too happy that the prosecutors are giving them a hard time, but they want more evidence. They just need more evidence to make a case. And they're saying, nope, can't take it to, can't take it to trial. And I worked in the prosecutor's office for a summer. Can't take it to trial. Need more evidence. And the cops are going, damn it, got to go back. And so that's what I mean by the tension. Right. Talk about being on that other side. Now, you're the prosecutor, and the FBI is coming to you. You're at the U.S. attorney, and you're saying, we need more. We need more. Right, right. And, and I love doing that. Uh, my job was I was an OCDF prosecutor, Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force prosecutor, uh, targeting major uh, drug trafficking organizations and trying to take down, disrupt them and take down their hierarchy. And those investigations might last anywhere from six months to three years. And usually it's multiple uh, federal, state, and, and local investigators, FBI, DEA, Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, uh, some PD, SO officers. And I enjoyed and loved those investigations because here was a target, career criminal, oftentimes violent, that needed to be taken down. How do we do it? And we're working toward it. I think uh, the agents I worked with came to appreciate uh, my experience as in law enforcement and expertise in figuring out ways to make cases against those folks. And it's like one of the task force agents told me later, he said, man, I used to fuss and cuss. You would have us doing so much. I'd fuss and cuss, but I learned a lot and I learned how it should be done. And I learned that we keep on going until we can cut off those defense avenues of escape so that when we have the case and we go to court, it's what people think. Yeah, it's a federal case, meaning, no, they're not going to be able to get out of it because you thought of how they're going to attack the evidence. You thought of the reasons they're going to try to use to confuse the jury. We keep going until we've got enough to get a conviction. And it's like a FBI agent and a state agent said when we were starting out a case, the FBI agent came over to start working with us on one of those cases. And the state agent said, um, 
well, you, you better get ready because for the next three years, you're not going to get much sleep. And that's about the way we, we work. We used to tell folks we'd work from can to can, can to can. And there you have it, our interview with Charlie Spillers, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And you can catch this on OurAmericanNetwork.org if you want to share it with friends, with family members. All of our work is up there, and we've done any number of stories on law enforcement, on soldiers, and the life of the men and women who wear uniforms uh, serving our country. Charlie Spiller's story, what a terrific one, from undercover agent all the way to the U.S. Attorney's Office. We didn't even get to his time in Iraq when the whole place was blowing up, and he was an attache there. The guy just loved going into dangerous places, and he loved strapping on that uniform and a sidearm and taking care of folks. Thanks, Charlie, for the time and for a life well served. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Charlie Spiller's story. Story.